This is Melissa, and today is the 8th of October, 2023. For those of you who heard me last week and have contacted me to express concern or support or commiseration, I appreciate it. I thank you because I do feel supported. I feel that even those of you who have nothing but your very best wishes and your heartfelt concern for me is it it, it buoys me it, it lifts me up it makes me feel as though i am not alone in what i'm doing so thank you The redux that I have chosen to go up is from May the 26th, 2011, a talk that Alan did on RBN, that's Republic Broadcasting Network. The poem is, G8 meeting is great for eating. The great eight club is off to France. That's A-T-E. The grade eight club is off to France for rich food, wine, women, dance. And while there, we'll sign agreements integrating more power for global achievements still to come. For such an ancient plan is not to be thwarted by petty man. Feudal overlords salivate, power delectable. Now each peasant is totally predictable. Transparent lives uploaded to net. The watcher's presence not felt as yet. Guzzling science's offerings. Science the savior, oblivious to guidance over their own behavior. So the G8 is now known as the G7 because in 2014 with this first Ukrainian-Russian situation, Russia was ousted from the group of eight and it became known as the Group of Seven. Doesn't that sound like a gang of pirates to you? It does to me. And the reason why I was, I settled upon this talk was because I was looking for some, I was looking for a talk in which Alan addressed theosophy. So I'll come back to that in a little bit, but I found this and I thought, I listened to the section on theosophy and I thought, well, that's, that's good enough for where my head is. Now, as I was scrolling on the website, I saw that the day before, I didn't listen to this talk, but I just read the poem from May the 25th, 2011. And I thought how this kind of tied in with world events right now. How easily they play us in this age of planned chaos. Crisis and terror levels, all this consternation. We're in training and adapting to behavior modification, keeping you safe, the oldest play used by psychopaths. There's a big club they belong to, brandy and belly laughs. So easy to reshape the world, direct the way it's going, using terror and austerity on a public never knowing the big club owns the banks. In control of media, a sci-fi weapons arsenal, 
tax-funded via academia. There's a total war on your body, a war on your mind, courtesy of the Psycho Club, the richest inbred kind. So I see in the news today that Israel has declared a state of war. Israel was attacked by the Hamas. I'm trying to piece together all of the different stories here. But here, this is something um, from the BBC. Israel confirms soldiers and civilians taken hostage by militants. Read the Israeli PM statement in full, and that's attached to this article. But this is what Netanyahu said. Citizens of Israel, we are at war, not an operation, not an escalation, a war. This morning, Hamas launched a murderous surprise attack against the state of Israel and its citizens. We've been at it since early morning. I convened the heads of the security system. First of all, I instructed to cleanse the settlements of the terrorists who had infiltrated. This operation is being carried out during these hours. At the same time, I ordered an extensive reserve mobilization and a retaliatory war with a strength and scope that the enemy had never known. The enemy will pay a price he has never known. In the meantime, I call on all citizens of Israel to strictly obey the instructions of the army and the instructions of the home command. We are in a war and we will win it. So that is Israel. This is from Al Jazeera. Why the Palestinian group Hamas launched an attack on Israel. All to know. Dozens killed, hundreds injured after Hamas sends rockets, fighters to Israel, which has started bombing Gaza. Israel and Hamas seem to be on the brink of another conflict after a surprise attack on Saturday involving aerial sea and ground operations initiated by the Palestinian group from the Gaza Strip. Israel responded with a heavy bombardment of the blockaded coastal enclave. Palestinian armed group Hamas has launched Operation Al-Aqsa Flood against Israel in the most serious escalation since Israel and Hamas fought an 11-day war in 2021. Hamas said it had fired 5,000 rockets while Israel confirmed that the group's fighters had entered its territory. Okay. There's plenty to see there. Israeli army also said it launched Operation Iron Swords against the Hamas group in the Gaza Strip. Last month, I was so sad to read about the fallout of this of a, of a terrible earthquake that happened in Morocco. Nearly 3,000 people died, and it's not a rich country, or I should say there's a huge division between the very rich and most of the rest of the country, which is pretty impoverished. As it was happening, and I was looking at news coverage on it, I saw a video of a woman. It was translated, but she was a woman who was crying and talking 
and saying, I have lost everything. I've lost my husband and all four of my children. I have nothing left in this world. It's all gone. And I know how news works, and I know things are emotive, and certain stories are put out there. They're geared more towards women than men, and vice versa. But certainly my heartstrings were tugged at. I, I felt for that woman. I frankly could not even imagine the loss of your entire family in such a, an event. So, the G8 that Alan was talking about and reading news articles about in 2011 was renamed the G7 in 2014. So I was looking around for some stories to see what is the G7 up to right now. And because their annual meeting is in May. So again, I chose the talk for Theosophy and we're not near May, but I thought, well, they must be up to something because they're always up to something. And I found a lot of different articles that had just come out in the last few days. The UK uh, has pledged its support for the Ukraine. Uh, here's Rishi Sunak. Um, if I can get back to this article here, but where is it? Yes, there's Rishi Sunak. He told G7 and NATO leaders on Tuesday that Britain was prepared to support Ukraine with military, humanitarian, economic assistance for as long as it take. Now, that's actually what Reuters said, but I think it's supposed to say for as long as it takes, because I've heard Rishi Sunak speak, and he speaks just fine. So he outlined the UK's ongoing military, humanitarian, and economic assistance to Ukraine and stressed that this support will continue for as long as it takes. Okay, they got it right there. Biden. On the morning of October the 3rd, U.S. President Joe Biden had a con phone conversation with the leaders and foreign ministers of U.S. allies amid uncertainty about ongoing military aid for Ukraine. According to the statement by the Biden administration, the participants in the call were the leaders of Canada, Germany, Italy, Japan, Poland, Romania, and the UK, the foreign minister of France, the presidents of the European Council, and the European Commission, and the NATO Secretary General. The White House said the aim of the phone call was to coordinate our constant support for Ukraine. I found something else about the G7 saying that we need to ban Russian diamonds. This was brought up at the last meeting of the G7 in May. Not enough is being done about it. It was quite lengthy article. I'll leave that there for you to read yourselves. Um, there were the Russians saying that this oil price cap is doing nothing. Ha ha ha. But then I finally stumbled on Japan considering organizing a group of seven meeting in Morocco on the sidelines of the IMF's International Monetary Fund's annual meeting. So I thought, well, 
Alan was right, because in this talk he said the politicians who attend these events, the gangsters, the pirates, they go to eat, to make little business deals for themselves with each other, to have their orgies, and yes, the prostitutes are flown in, whatever you like, it's laid on for you. And he also talked about the pomp and circumstance, you know, the pageantry, the red carpet that is rolled out for these people. And they love to be treated like royalty. So they roll out the red carpet. And I thought, well, let's just see what's going on in this devastated country of Morocco that just last month had this tragic event happen. Now, I did stumble on a rather bizarre story here about the earthquake. Because remember, some things that happen in nature are horrible. The natural occurrences Earthquakes, though, are the type of event that can be helped along. So you always have to look at everything from every side. And then here was one from the New Arab. Israeli rabbis suggest the Morocco earthquake was caused by King's call for East Jerusalem being Palestinian capital. An Israeli rabbi appeared to suggest that a devastating earthquake which struck Morocco last month was due to the country's king saying Jerusalem should be the capital of a future Palestinian state. Rabbi Moshe Al-Charar, or El-Charar, Rabbi Moshe El-Charar, a rabbi for the local council of the town of Shlomi in northern Israel, made the bizarre statement in an op-ed he wrote for the religious Zionist website, Shrugim. In it, he suggested that the Moroccan earthquake was divine punishment for Moroccan King Mohammed VI's audacious call for peace with Israel based on 1967 borders and East Jerusalem as the capital of a Palestinian state, a vision shared by most of the world. The September 8 quake left nearly 3,000 people killed and large-scale destruction, mainly in towns and villages in the Atlas Mountains near Marrakesh. Despite establishing ties with Israel in 2020, the Moroccan monarch in late July said occupied East Jerusalem should be the capital of a sovereign Palestinian state. Israel claims that all of Jerusalem is okay there's so many typos in modern journalism israel claims israel claims all of jerusalem as its undivided eternal capital and many right-wing israeli politicians have outright rejected any proposal to establish an independent palestinian state King Mohammed VI of Morocco recently made a bold statement just a few months ago asserting that Jerusalem should become the capital of the Palestinians. Almost immediately after his statement, significant regions experienced severe disturbances and collapses. 
The rabbi suggested that the king should seek repentance in the face of the devastating earthquake in his country. Well, I don't know if the king of Morocco has sought repentance, but the IMF has descended upon the country and offered their financial <laughs> support. And, of course, the reason why they're having this gathering in Morocco, what they say is the first meeting of the IMF in an African country in 50 years, is to bring their support to devastated Morocco. Now, I read an article about this event. This is from Reuters. Marrakesh prepares for IMF and World Bank meeting a month after deadly quake. Moroccans living just an hour from where the global financial elite will gather for IMF and World Bank meetings next week are homeless and destitute after last month's deadly earthquake, camping amid the rubble of their devastated villages. Near the conference venue in the city of Marrakesh, where quake damage was less severe, the old city wall has already been repaired. A fallen minaret has been covered up. Rubble has been removed. Lawns trimmed and flowers planted. Oh, how they hurry to put a pretty face on it for all the arriving important potentates, eh? But in the high Atlas Mountains, where most of the quake's 3,000 victims were killed, villagers live in tents with little access to showers or working toilets, surviving on state handouts while they try to resurrect their shattered lives. The vivid contrast reflects inequalities that already defined a country that has some of Africa's most advanced infrastructure and industry, but where many of the rural poor live without basic services, including sewage systems. A single night in a twin bedroom at Marrakesh's historic La Mumunia Hotel during the IMF meeting was advertised this week at 20,000 Moroccan dirhams, dirhams, however that is said, or about $1,900. Average annual GDP per capita among people living in this region is only about $2,000. Okay, I'll stop there. You can read the rest of that article. I want to focus on this hotel and the cost of the hotel. This is 20,000 Moroccan dirhams per night, $1,900. Now, it's a single night in a twin bedroom, right? I'm just going to round up $2,000 a night. Well, I'm, I, I, I didn't buy it. As shocking as that amount may sound, I didn't buy it. A twin bedroom. Who stays in a twin bedroom of this class of pirate gangsters, the pirate thieves. Hmm? I doubt any of them do. So I decided that I would just go and take a little online visit to La Mumunia Hotel. Now, what is interesting about this hotel is that it is described as a palace. 
So when you enter the front page, which I'm off of right now, they tell you how beautiful this palace is. It's one of the top 50 hotels in the world. So I just started inputting some days. Now, obviously, because this event is happening in Marrakesh starting Monday and going for six nights from the, uh, I think, the 9th to the 16th, that's actually a full week. So a full week here. I'm sorry, I only checked the room prices for six days. I spent a little time looking at the cost of rooms, not just the little twin beds. And sure enough, the low-level secretaries, the low-level bureaucrats, the hangers-on who are going to be attending this event with the big muckety-mucks, yeah, maybe they're going to be uh, charged about 2000 maybe 3000 a night per room. But most of the rest of the hotel for this event, you're looking at suites and upgraded, I mean, quite amazing rooms and suites. And I am going to link to the hotel so that you can check it yourself. But I did a little bit of currency exchanges for what it would cost to stay six nights. This is per room or per suite. So this is not per night, but per room and per suite, the amounts that I came up with for the rooms that these banksters are likely to stay at range from 14000 at the very lowest end for the modest, <laughs> most modest accommodation up to about $36,000 for those six nights. Now, I read that about 10,000 people are descending upon Marrakesh for this event. Just wrap your heads around that. 10,000 people. Where do they come from? What are they doing? Obviously, they're not all staying at this hotel, but... You know, and we're being sold that it's a great thing. It's going to uh, help tourism get back on its feet. Do you really think that any of this money is going to go and help these villagers rebuild? Do you think that any of this money is going to go into the pocket of that poor woman who lost her husband and her four children and her home? I don't. So Alan, in this talk, he went from pageantry and into what these gangsters at the top believe. And this was spurred on by a call that he received. At, there are actually two calls there at the, towards the end of the talk. And one of the callers wanted to talk about basically Satanism, Christianity, Satanism, the elite, what do the elite believe? And, and well, actually, he wanted to talk about what he believed as a Christian. And Alan was explaining what the elite believe. And he got into theosophy and into Aleister Crowley and sex magic. And I got to thinking in terms of this event, it just made me think, you know, oh, 
over the years, Alan has received so many people sending him the, oh, you know, like footage of the Super Bowl halftime show or an Olympic uh, opening or closing ceremony. And look at the symbolism. Look at this. And Alan would mostly say, I, I don't need to see that. I don't need to see that. I don't need anything broken down or decoded or I simply don't need to see what they are giving people in symbolism because he said we live surrounded by symbolism all the time. We're in it completely. But now to the point of what got me into theosophy. Um, I had done a talk some months back with someone who was uh, talking about Rudolf Steiner and they had stumbled upon his work recently and they were appreciating it and they I put up a couple of uh, talks that were, I think had been recorded from his words and so you know they said he you know, this is a complete f- school of thought and the person who the people who contacted me had actually sent me several hours of audio they were talking about their own discoveries about Rudolf Steiner and theosophy and how these ideas infiltrate the modern culture and so forth and they said in this recorded thing they they sent they said now make no mistake anthroposophy that was founded by Rudolf Steiner is really just theosophy. It's the same thing with a name change. Okay, so we'll leave that one aside for a moment. And then someone else contacted me recently. There, were, There is a listener who made a video that I put up on all of the channels that featured together uh, Krishnamurti and Alan Watt. And this person said, you know, that they, they basically just wondered what Alan would think. And if they pointed out to me that Krishnamurti was the adopted son of Annie Besant. So here we are back to theosophy. And I did know that, and Alan knew that too. And I just wanted to say something about Krishnamurti. He was picked up as a child. I think he was only about nine or ten years old. His father was a theosophist in India from the Brahmin class. And Annie Besant, who received her introduction into theosophy from Madame Blavatsky, and all of this is to bring in the New Age, feminism, Uh, everything that we need right now in this new place of greening and sustainability and so forth, you might say stems from this. And then you've got, uh, you know, associated with this, you have the OTO and Aleister Crowley and sex magic, because what you're talking about is a a new system. So they're going to cover it. You know, the OTO, you've got music, entertainment, and so forth. We're going to completely blanket you in a new way of thinking and seeing the world with new symbolism, and it's a new religion. So this video was done by a listener in New Zealand, and he had he wrote and said that he just he said he put them together for no other reason but that Krishnamurti and Alan Watt had been his two best teachers. 
Now, after Krishnamurti moved to the U.S., some things happened, one of which was the death of his brother that he was very close to, and Annie Besant and all of those around her in theosophy who were bring, who were raising him up to be the new world messiah for a new religion had assured him that his brother was going to be okay. They just knew that he was going to be okay. And when his brother succumbed to his, I think it was the flu, um, and died, and this was a, a disillusioning moment for him. And he eventually broke away and distanced himself from theosophy and from all of the people who had brought him to the U.S. and positioned him to be the world Messiah. And I just wanted to read something that I found. It's a little quote from Krishnamurti on his wiki page. And he this was 1929 when he was more or less distancing himself from Ledbetter and Annie Besant, who wanted him to continue with the Order of the Star. This is all the theosophy stuff. And this is the um, statement that he made in 1929 when he dissolved the Order. He said he made his decision after careful consideration during the previous two years and that, I maintain that truth is a pathless land, and you cannot approach it by any path whatsoever, by any religion, by any sect. That is my point of view, and I adhere to that absolutely and unconditionally. Truth, being limitless, unconditioned, unapproachable by any path whatsoever, cannot be organized, nor should any organization be formed to lead or coerce people along a particular path. This is no magnificent deed, because I do not want followers, and I mean this. The moment you follow someone, you cease to follow truth. I am not concerned whether you pay attention to what I say or not. I want to do a certain thing in the world, and I am going to do it with unwavering concentration. I am concerning myself with only one essential thing, to set man free. I desire to free him from all cages, from all fears, and not to found religions, new sects, nor to establish new theories and new philosophies. I had mentioned several weeks ago before I became distracted that I was working on some videos and one of the things which I, I did get up part one of something that I'm working on and this was from a talk that Alan Watt gave in 2007, meaning mentors and masters, or seekers, speakers, and sophists. And I was considering this for a redux a few weeks ago, but then I realized, hmm, this is so profound, I think I'll break it down into segments, and I have done that. I've broken it into six parts, and I have already separated the audio and I'm now making the little videos and I put up the first one which I gave the title religion and Alan talks about religion and how there are bits of truth in everything and he he called that the things that you can learn can be staging rockets to higher truth 
And I think part of what, uh, where people get stuck on the journey. And why I'm on about this is because it should be obvious to anyone that we're living in really dark and bleak times. And so the human mind being what it is seeks some reassurances and some even an insurance policy, if you will, for a life beyond this. And some people say, well, Alan just didn't talk explicitly about religion or about spirituality. But to me, this was the pretty much the entirety of what he spoke about. Because the path that he that he took and that he just wanted to say, oh, here, you know, don't follow me, but find your own path. And that path is know thyself. And this is ancient, you know, ancient. Know thyself. And when you know yourself, there are things that you can study. There are schools of thought that you can dive into and you can take those little bits of truth and then you can move on like he said, staging rockets to higher truths. So I'll post that uh, little, it's about 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 30 seconds, somewhere in there that I just did recently along with this talk. But that's, that is pretty much all I wanted to say today and probably more than you wanted to hear. <laughs> but I... Uh, I'll talk about Jung, a little tiny bit of Carl Jung, too, because the conversation about Krishnamurti got me thinking about the fact that, that Alan spent at least you know several blurbs reading from Carl Jung's The Undiscovered Self and he was no follower of Jung. And in fact, he felt that Jung got a lot wrong and had pretty much dived off into a world in which he very nearly did not recover. You know, this whole, you can look into it yourselves, but the, the channeling, Philemon, um, you know, and Jung said himself. I mean, he 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 really did derange himself for a while. It took it took a, a little while to come back to a functioning place because when you do, when you dive off the deep end in your psyche, well, you really do have to know yourself first because you have to know what you're coming back to. That you 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 have to have a place where you are completely safe in your own mind and you're not looking for validation. You're not looking for anyone else to say, you're right, I agree. But what Carl Jung, in talking about Christianity, said, I'll just read a little bit. He's talking about consciousness and the individual psyche. He said, the individual psyche just because of its individuality is an exception to the statistical rule and is therefore robbed of one of its main characteristics when subjected to the leveling influence of statistical evaluation. 
Secondly, the churches grant it validity only insofar as it acknowledges their dogmas, in other words, when it surrenders to a collective category. So what, just in really super plain English, it is okay to be an individual up to the point that that clashes with the collective, the dogma that the collective is to follow. In both cases, Jung writes, the will to individuality is regarded as egotistic obstinacy. Science devalues it as subjectivism, and the churches condemn it morally as heresy and spiritual pride. As to the latter charge, it should not be forgotten that unlike other religions, Christianity holds at its core a symbol which has for its content the individual way of life of a man, the son of man, and that it even regards this individuation process as the incarnation and revelation of God himself. Hence, the development of the self acquires a significance whose full implications have hardly begun to be appreciated because too much attention to externals, externals, that means anything outside of your own psyche, blocks the way to immediate inner experience. Were not the autonomy of the individual, the secret longing of many people, this hard-pressed phenomenon would scarcely be able to survive the collective suppression, either morally or spiritually. Then he went on to write, a few pages later, This is not to say that Christianity is finished. I am, on the contrary, convinced that it is not Christianity, but our conception and interpretation of it that has become antiquated in the face of the present world situation. The Christian symbol as a living thing that carries in itself the seeds of further development. It can go on developing. It depends only on us, whether we can make up our minds to meditate again and more thoroughly on the Christian premises. This requires a very different attitude towards the individual, towards the microcosm of the self from the one we have had hitherto. That is why nobody knows what ways of approach are open to man, what inner experiences he can still pass through, and what psychic facts underlie the religious myth. So again, I reiterate that Alan said on quite a few occasions, bits of truth and everything, staging rockets to higher truth. And in this talk, when he was speaking to the caller who called in, Alan said something he didn't elaborate too much, but there were two points that struck me. The first was that he was describing to the caller ancient, what you might call original Christianity, and how revolutionary it was because of the value on the individual. And he said that the individual, it was being conveyed to them that they matter, that every true individual matters. 
And that is revolutionary. And we're certainly moving further and further away from that. And then just as a little cautionary into diving into the world where you find these bits of truth, he mentioned a book with a caller called The Two Babylons by Grant Hislop. And I remember early on with Alan that he, he had that book just right out there. I don't know, there you know, lots and lots of books, but there was the, it was right there. And I picked it up. And he saw me looking at it. And he said, don't read that. And what he meant was, and elaborated on later, was don't read that yet. And I said, why not? And he said, because you have to have a foundation in your mind before you expose it to certain concepts and ideas and authors. You have to be very secure. And I leave you with that. Anyone who has come upon Alan whether you're newly listening to his material or you've been listening to him for years, is seeking. And I think what Alan was repeating over and over is, it's the man in the mirror and look within. And when you really are strong with that, that is self-knowledge, then you might find it useful to explore schools of thought or someone else's idea. It's very easy to get lost in the ideas of men who are corrupted and corruptible and wrong. And Alan knew this, so the caution is be an individual, know yourself, as for Alan himself, <laughs> I, I just, he wasn't one to be categorized. So I don't think he would mind the dialogue at all about Rudolf Steiner or what someone might be getting at some stage in their journey from someone who springs forth from theosophy. Anywhere you land and plant your feet firmly and say, Eureka, this is it, is probably a slippery slope. But if it is a springboard to something higher, not such a scary place to have landed for a brief excursion. Thank you again for expressing to me that what I'm saying and doing and writing matters to you. I appreciate that. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 26th of May 2011. For newcomers, please look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com. You'll find hundreds of audios for a free download and hopefully you'll have basically clues to the big system uh, and shortcuts to the big system that runs the world, where it's headed, uh, how long it's been in operation, and really it's a way above politics, 
It's way above the systems, even the countries. It's one big international gang, of course, of the richest people on the planet who really run the world. And to show you how they, they do it, I, I've given you, as I say, hundreds of audios to choose from with lots of information, books to read, and so on. So help yourselves. And remember, too, all those sites listed on the com site have transcripts in English if you want to print some up of some of the talks I've given. And if you want transcripts in other languages, go into Alan Watt Sentinel, sentinel.eu and help yourself from the variety offered there. Remember, too, you're the audience that bring me to you, so you could buy the discs and the books that I sell on cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Use the donation button you'll see in the com site and follow it with an email with name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. And you can also use a personal check, as I say, or cash even. That gets through as well. Number two, straight donations are certainly uh, appreciated because things are really climbing. As we all know, we're all going through it, uh, this forced austerity after supposedly bailing out the banks that uh, lost all their money to some place called Money Heaven, where I guess they've got their own uh, archangel with the key, no doubt, because nothing really gets lost in this world, believe you me, uh, not for these boys. So that's the world that we live in, and... I try to show you the agenda, uh, where it's heading, how it's been done, and I'm sure most of you who listen to this broadcast regularly have a good understanding already of the associations, the foundations, uh, the private foundations, the NGOs that are funded by them, armies and armies of them, that lobby government, along with the, the corporate business structure, international business. They really uh, are all in at the top levels of uh, running this world into this new system, a system which is to be a feudal system. Personally, I think it already is, and um, democracy is, is pretty well long dead. Democracy now is just a tool to get the rest of their agenda through, in fact. Uh, it's like the Constitution is ignored when, when the government doesn't want to hear, and, of course, they use it when they want something to get rammed through. Same idea with democracy. It's used and abused uh, to get the rest of the agenda through, and we're living through the most incredible changes planned a long time ago, mind you, and taking generations to get up to speed till we're ready for the big changes. And a lot of folk are. We've been programmed our whole lives. Your parents were programmed before you. And, of course, we're living through this part of the, the major change is to try to bring in this globalistic, feudalistic system where basically fascists at the top with their own private clubs run the world and the rest of you are run under a massive bureaucracy, which you pay for very hand handsomely from your tax money, a bureaucracy modeled after a, a super-Soviet system, a communistic system for the masses, and that's really the system that is in play today. All living through it, as I say. And most folk, of course, who have adapted, people adapt very well, they understand behaviorism very well, Psychology, neuro, uh, they've got uh, neurology all in a neuroscience working together to make sure that most folk, most, the, the dead, the walking dead as they call them, uh, will float through it without knowing there's anything actually wrong. They adapt to all the PC changes that come their way. One of the biggest societies that's really behind the, the plan changes, as I've mentioned so many times, and it's mentioned by Professor Carl Quigley, who was a historian for at one point for this big rich society, the plan to shape the world, and they've actually done it all, actually. They're still running it yet. They run all the media. In fact, all top journalists are members of the Council on Foreign Relations in the U.S. with their own branch in Canada, New Zealand, Australia, India has them, and have other ones across the world. 
And in Britain, they just simply call it the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which is really the parent lodge, you might say. And they also have one established now for all the European politicians at the European Parliament. So the same crew are directing the world. Uh, the interesting thing is two branches of them set up the, the Fabian Society to control and, and guide the left wing, and uh, they also control the right wing. So they're, 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 they really are the body behind the shield to an extent, uh, at least the ones that are visible to us. And whenever you want to know what's happening in the world, uh, handouts are given out by them because the CFR, as I say, really has most of its membership in the journalistic and editorial world, television, and, uh, and politics too. They put their own guys into politics all the time. In fact, every president and prime minister since the late 1800s, apparently, according to Quigley, was a member of this particular group right to the present day. So whenever you want to know what's happening, just look into what they're, they're saying on their own sites. And we see on the CFR blog that politics, power, and preventative action. So I guess it's time for a big P for those guys. And it says here the 2011 G8 agenda. Now, you understand, too, these boys, when they started up, were comprised mainly, at least as far as the public have been told, of two groups, the Milner group, Lord Alfred Milner, who came from Germany, and... uh, and also Cecil Rhodes Society, who was also co-partnered by the, the Rothschild at the time to take over the world's resources and bring in a type of system which we're living through today. They combined and formed the Royal Institute of International Affairs. They own and staff the Royal Society to direct all sciences. And all sciences, by the way, are directed. There's many, many directions society could go. And we don't think about that. We just take everything for granted. We're just progressing along and, and uh, willy-nilly. But no, you put your money into where you want research and development to go because it must match the society you've already planned. And as I said, they give handouts across the world to the rest of their members working in other newspapers. But from their blog here, it says that the 2011 G8 agenda, it says France, which currently holds the rotating presidency for the Group of Eight. Now, they started up, again, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, CFR, uh, these terms, because they made so many different committees, and they were committees or groups, and they called them groups of two, four, and so on. And the G20, the G8, this is all part of the same established system which they created, working on specialized areas of controlling this world. And it says, and the G20 is hosting the annual G8 summit in the resort town of Deauville, May 26th, 27th. The meeting is slated to feature a general lineup of issues, including the global economy, now we're a global economy now, you understand. Everything's global. Uh, political and security issues such as drug trafficking and terrorism, which is going to be an excuse for something else. Exiting from Afghanistan, which of course won't happen yet. And Iran's nuclear program, because that's next on the list too. They've got Syria and Iran to go. That, that was what they had on their same list for the new American century group after they finished with Egypt elsewhere and Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and it says, and internet governance, and there's big, big uh, changes coming on the internet, and uh, we're going to see that very toughly policed very shortly. It said, a significant agenda item will be nuclear energy safety in the aftermath of March 11th Japanese earthquake and tsunami that destroyed the Fukushima nuclear plant. A summary priority will be two issued in sessions on the Arab Spring events in North Africa and the Middle East with leaders of Egypt and Tunisia. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and the heads of the Arab League 
the International Monetary Fund, the big boys, they're all getting together, and the World Bank. You understand this whole system is coming yet into the open more and more as they all get together at the same meetings all the time. So other G8 sessions will be devoted to African economic and social development, which generally means plunder, you know, that's what they mean by that. They're also allowed to be sidelined discussions about candidates for the next head of the IMF, uh, a vacancy created after Dominic Strauss-Kahn's arrest and resignation. Then it goes on to some of the key concerns, supposedly, that they're going to... They understand that this meeting is a formality. Like, all these big things are formalities because they call the Sherpas, which they call them the Sherpas, are sent out a year ahead of world meetings to work. These are bureaucrats, high-level bureaucrats, and they basically plan everything, all the agendas, the topics, and they they draft up all the documents that are to be signed after these guys have their big uh, feasting session and drunken orgies. And it says here, it's really good as the U.S. is going down. A major Middle East speech, May 19th, Obama pledged to forgive one billion dollars in Egyptian debt. Isn't that nice, isn't it? I guess it's, it must be nice to be in that position where you can forgive uh, all that money when it isn't yours anyway. And supply another one billion in loan guarantees for Egypt and Tunisia. Now that's, going to, that's also going to get uh, basically written off and the American taxpayers, as always, will have to pay for it. It's the same whenever we give out this stuff and they forgive debts, uh, as they always put you down as a guarantor when they borrow more money from the World Bank. Anyway, it says, he also supports new investments across the region, including billions in aid from institutions like the World Bank, and is expected to outline a plan for reforming the Middle East at the summit. He may, oh, it must be great, we're going to reform the Middle East, you know, we've got the right to do that. He also meets, uh, may meet on the sidelines with Russian President Dmitry Medvedev to discuss a planned U.S. missile shield in Europe. Because of challenges in Congress, Obama is unable to provide Russia with the binding guarantees it seeks that the missile shield would not be used against him. Well, who's it really there for, eh? Uh, this is Brookings Institution Stephen uh, Pfeiffer uh, uh, notes. However, he argues that Obama can offer political guarantees and greater cooperation, such as a jointly manned early warning center. Obama is already threatening to veto a bill that would attempt to limit the administration's implementation of the strategic arms agreement with Russia. Obama is also expected to meet bilaterally with Japanese Prime Minister Naito Kan to talk about nuclear safety with German Chancellor Angela Merkel about the Eurozone crisis. And then they're going about, in the wake of the May 14th arrest of uh, IMF Chief Dominic Strauss-Kahn, a chief political rival of uh, President Sarkozy, Sarkozy, the summit could provide Sarkozy a chance to earn much-needed political points. And it goes on and on about other things too. France actually is heading this meeting, so that's probably why they got their first dibs as an honour to, you know, to bomb a few countries, well, Libya and stuff like that. Who's the honours this year? Oh, it's France. Okay, you can go and bomb them first and get first dibs in the oil. Anyway, that's how it's presented to us. It's all done in advance, as I say. That's why these guys can write it out. And who better than the guys who planned it to see it comes from foreign relations? Then when you go to the BBC, uh, and I've talked about these massive luncheons they have, that's all they go for to, to meet each other, slap each other on the back, and um, uh, have great feasts and fanfare and lots of prostitutes, all paid for by taxpayers' money, and uh, which is well known. I'm not making this stuff up. It's been major and mainstream, and uh, lots of big boozing and stuff like that. But in the BBC article, which is pretty well the same, actually, because, again, it's all Council of Foreign Relations members, or as I say, Royal Institute of International Affairs, as they call it in Britain, it uh, says here that um, the summit opened uh, uh, the French traditional leaders meant to, gar- uh, to agree the sale of four French-built Mistral helicopters 
carriers to Russia at a cost of at least 400 million euros each. So we're a war industry now. Anything that's at all working is actually a, a war industry. It says, in drizzling rain, President Sarkozy welcomed his guests to the coastal casino resort as they were heralded by trumpets. Isn't that wonderful to just live like royalty? In this age of austerity, trumpets blaring, red carpets, all that. The red carpet idea, you understand, came from sovereignty in ancient times because the great god Ra, you know, the sun god, uh, the very old, old god, and uh, it would make his path across the sky, but in the morning, eventually he would blaze a, a red color, a very red color. That was him blazing uh, and preparing his path for the day and the, the path of the world to follow. So all sovereigns who then became sun kings and sun queens uh, had to copy the same thing, and that's what the red carpet's for. Now these characters have got it, and uh, they have trumpets and, and all that heraldry stuff to welcome them into their big luncheon with make little private deals and all the rest of it. So you can read both of the articles. I'll put them up at cuttingthroughthematrix.com at the end of the broadcast for those that want to wade through it. But it's all predictable. We're well on course to the agenda. And there's nothing to stop it, you see, because there's only one system in the world that, that actually works and is working and makes sure that there's no opposition. And then that's the ones I'm talking about right here. It's their world. It's their future. They've planned it all. And the stuff that they're giving us right here as kind of exoteric, because they also have their esoteric group, their inner party, and, and then they don't let non-members know about uh, what they, they're really on about there. You probably wouldn't want to know. It's about depopulation and stuff like that. Now, <laughs> it says, um, Congress tonight in the U.S. has a midnight deadline on the anti-terror bill. And it's uh, Congress is rushing to extend. Can you imagine Congress actually rushing have you ever seen these guys rushing anywhere except to the bar? Congress is rushing to extend the life of three anti-terror tools, including the use of roving wiretaps before they expire midnight Thursday. The Senate was set to start voting on the legislation, including possible amendments, Thursday morning. Final passage during the day was sent to the House for quick approval, and then onward to President Barack Obama in Europe for his signature. I wonder if his hand will be steady with all that heavy meals and, you know, uh, sups of special stuff or goblets. The rapid-fire action on key elements of the post-911 USA Patriot Act comes after several days of impasse in the Senate and results in part from the prodding of senior intelligence officials who warned of the consequences of disrupting surveillance operations. So they're going to keep this perpetual war across the world going until they have got the society, the world society that they want, the world system, and perpetual war, and perpetual surveillance, perpetual terrorism acts across the world. Isn't that a wonderful, lovely future, isn't it? Back with more after this break. Cutting through the matrix. And just before I go to callers, uh, there's an article here uh, that's just come out. Uh, I love this transparency in government, isn't it? The speed of light travels differently from government sources, though it's, it kind of gets to us a few years later. It says, the Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs and Royal Bank of Scotland, which is actually mainly government-owned by, by London, each borrowed at least $30 billion, uh, or $30 billion, yeah, U.S., it says, in 2008 from a Federal Reserve Emergency Lending Program whose details weren't revealed to shareholders, members of Congress, or the public. It says the, the 80 U.S. billion initiative called Single Tranche Open Market Operations, or STOMO. I thought OMO was, a, was something that made your clothes whiter and white. 
I guess the laundry, made 28-day loans from March through December 2008, a period in which confidence in global credit markets collapsed after September 15th, the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers Holdings. Units of 20 banks were required to bid at auctions for the cash. They paid interest rates as low as 0.01% that December when the Fed's main lending facility charged 0.5%. It says this was a pure subsidy, said Robert A. Eisenbeis, former head of research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and now chief monetary economist at Florida-based Cumberland Advisors. The Fed hasn't been forthcoming with disclosures overall. Why should this be any different? Federal Bank in New York, which oversaw the STOMO, posted aggregate data about the program on its website after each auction, said Jeffrey V. Smith, a New York Fed spokesman. By increasing the availability of short-term financing when private lenders were under pressure, this program helped alleviate strains in financial markets, sometimes it covered up all the crooked, the crooked deals we're doing, and support the flow of credit to the U.S. households and businesses, he said. It's amazing they can screw you and then turn around and say they're trying to help you, right? Isn't that wonderful? But I that's what psychopaths do. Now, there's a caller from Montreal. It's Hershid who's on the line. Are you there, Hershid? Hello? Hi, hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm surviving just about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I listened to a couple of your talks. They were quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to ask you a small question. Yeah. So in one of your talks, or I think more than one, I listened that uh, you said at some point of time that Marx, Karl Marx was funded by Rothschild and even the Communist Manifesto, I think 1848 or something like that, was, was the Rothschild funding, it was a product of Rothschild funding. I, I, was just, I just wanted to look at the reference or source, like how can I get the real source where it, it's... Well, you have to go beyond beyond the sources that the Council on Foreign Relations have given you, which is most of the stuff you'll get off the bookstores, unless you go and buy books written in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. About 1920, everything, all history was written by members of the Royal Institute of International Affairs and Council on Foreign Relations. They say even Winston Churchill uh, made a speech about that when he found this out. He was out of the loop. He wasn't in the know. And he says it's amazing that a group like this, uh, a group like the, the he, at that time he called it was a Milner group, mainly they knew the name by, and he said it's, it's amazing that they can actually uh, plan conflicts and wars to bring in a, a, a society which, and he was talking about global government, which they wanted. I mean, they were, they were agitating from the late 1880s uh, for a war with Germany. They wanted world wars. Uh, so they could direct the, the, the direction of it. And it says, it's even worse, it says, when every school child and every student in university are reading history books written by the same members who are actually planning the future. So you have to go into the, the books to see where the funding was really going for, for the major characters in history, especially in the 1800s. This, you can actually go earlier, in fact, because this group has been on the go for many centuries. And... Um, I mean, I've got stacks of books here I can't read them right now Because they're in a different room But there's stacks of books out there They always give you a Whenever you see a rags to riches story Or someone really struggling For the people You know there's something going on there It isn't that at all Because these boys plan to bring through Their system by the dialectic They were all Hegelian and inspired 
they truly believe that out of conflict comes uh, a future which you can direct, but you must create the conflict you must have left and right on the go at the same time. And that's why we're going through it today uh, with a, a form of Marxism, on the one hand, utterly uh, destroying what was left of the old society, including the family unit, and even male and female, or even what it is to be a man or a woman. And on the other hand, you have the big boys at the top, supposedly right-wing, who are pushing their war industry across the world and grabbing all the resources. So it's a long, long, long trek, and you're not going to find it from, from your, your standard modern books at all. That's what I'm asking. Like, it's not in the mainstream. So Because what I know is that Marx was living in extreme poverty when he went to London. He was, like, he was sent to exile. That, that's what they tell you. But when you, when you, look, at, uh, when you look at Marx's favorite friend who owned factories, Marx was not living in poverty at all. He was not living in poverty at all. That's what, uh, that's what I know. So that's what I'm asking. Like, do, yeah. So how do I... Uh, because that's what... We know through history books, so to verify that Marx was not living in utter poverty and he was funded yeah. by Rothschild, so I, I'm, I, I would like to read those uh, those sources or those those sort of references, so can you suggest... I'll, I'll try and do something on that and, and when I get the time. I may give, give you some of the history or maybe a lecture on, on the air, a couple of lectures on some of this history because it's, it's really so bogus when you see, again, who, who the, his friends were, who was funding him with his writings. Uh, and you, do you think they'd let him live in poverty at the same time? No, I don't think so. Back after this break. Just to end with Hershey 2, I was thinking there that uh, apart from the, uh, the rags to riches story, which is exactly the same as Rothschild himself, you know, they just were rag merchants and they just got lucky and that kind of nonsense. That's how history is written and we're supposed to believe it, but you'll find... Uh, that um, even the funding continued to all the, the communist revolutionaries, uh, including Lenin himself. Lenin had private bank accounts, sort of all the boys, Trotsky and all the rest of it, in Switzerland. And there's a couple of excellent videos out at the moment. I'll try and get a hold of them and maybe put them up tonight after the broadcast. And you can see that these guys were anything but for the people. They were certainly playing their part, and they were well picked for their psychopathic tendencies. But Marx himself, I mean, he was kicked out of Germany as a, basically a feral journalist, uh, a little scribbler, uh, who himself was just a, a, a sideline revolutionary in an extent. But he was picked up and certainly pushed to the top in Britain. Now, you think about it, too, Britain ruled the world at that time, supposedly, and you really think they'd bring in this agitator and allow him to do his stuff without touching him? Uh, no way at all. Britain even allowed them to have the biggest halls in London for the world revolutionary parties that, that, that said they were going to destroy all royalty and all systems of government. Why would Britain do that? It's because, you see, London already controlled it. That was its base. That's why. Now, we'll go to Paul from Ontario, who's on the line. Are you there, Paul? Hello? Yeah, hello there, Alan. Yes. How are you? Not too bad. Yep. Okay, I'm actually uh, from your neck of the woods, I guess, from uh, Toronto. You are, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, regrettably. <laughs> 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 Anyhow, uh, you know, uh, Canada is just uh, one of those uh, uh, very deceptive places, at least the way people perceive it to be. But, Don't you uh, know, yeah. Don't It's be. got a very <laughs> dark underbelly, doesn't it? It's astonishing. Again, uh, these guys who run the world and who've planned this for a long time, uh, I mean, they sort of rose up the U.S. to be the kind of knight in shining armor that wasn't tainted with conquest 
they couldn't use Britain because Britain was already rampaging across the world. France was the same. Uh, Germany was trying to get into countries like Africa. Uh, so they had to get a new sh- knight in shining armor that would lead the, the people into a new world, a fair world, and so on. So they created the U.S., and their symbols are all across Washington, D.C., very ancient symbols, and they certainly aren't Christian or, or Muslim or anything else. They're definitely from Egypt. But uh, Canada itself, again, the cap, we're the cap on top of the U.S. And when you see how much influence uh, is, is really put on the U.S. from Canada, it's quite astonishing that the incredibly wealthy families uh, that are very quiet, live in Canada, and who are top players in this big world league here, uh, top money lenders and, and related to royalty and so on. It's just astonishing what we do here. And, and leading the world in bacterial and viral warfare since World War II, uh, stuff like that is quite astonishing. As we try to portray ourselves as uh, helping the helping hand across the world, and yet they manage to keep it quiet. We've got our own special air service uh, squadrons here, uh, and we've had them for quite a few years now, trained by Britain. And these special forces have been active for years, and all the countries are not supposed to be. And that means going over and getting bloodied and killing people. So Canada is very, very good at giving out a PR image to the rest of the world as a squeaky clean, covered in snow type country. Yeah. Yes, certainly is. Uh, anyways, I, w- I just called to say, you know, uh, I appreciate your uh, encyclopedic knowledge, and it's always, uh, you know, learn some uh, new nuggets of uh, information about history in the present world uh, from your show. So thank you for the work that you do. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, before I go, I just wanted to make one comment in that uh because you know when you when especially as you observed yourself that a lot of these things you know they they go back to uh, if you go back in time to history and back uh, to Samaria Babylon etc mm-hmm. there's always an occult uh, linking to the present time at least uh, you know the people that uh, run the show so to speak on the earth yeah. uh, they are definitely involved in uh, in the dark arts and uh, their practices and rituals which uh, you know, the average person uh, who's uh, kept entertained by American Idol, etc., has no idea about. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, is it not wise? Do you not think that uh, it's really, uh, you, we cannot view this thing in purely human terms? You know, the other way, it doesn't yeah. really make yeah. sense when you just look at it from a, uh, just a human perspective, because the things that these guys do, you know, like destroying the planet and, uh, you know, all that stuff, if they just want to kill some people, they could easily set up a society as have existed all through history, like the Aztecs, or, you know, where you want to do some sacrifices, etc. If you got the power, you go ahead and do it. Sure. Uh, so uh, don't you think there's something beyond the, the planetary, uh, beyond the visible realm that is directing so well, the they're component. definitely into that. They're, they're definitely into that. There's no doubt at all. Uh, their histories um, show you that they were definitely into. Even someone uh, like uh, Albert Pike, who wrote basically what was, and still is for some high members, the, the Masonic Bible, his Morals and Dogma book. Um, and I've no doubt it was written by a, a few different hands, basically. It wasn't just one person writing it. It's too much. Uh, detail. I mean, Hebrew, Greek, uh, Latin, a whole bunch of uh, ancient histories he came up with, etc. One guy simply couldn't do all of that or have the, all the information available to him. Um, but uh, he set out the, the, the system that seems very pragmatic. Again, he was also head of the World Revolutionary Society, and he was set up to do that. And that's when Freemasonry came in from France, 
They called itself the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. It wasn't Scottish at all. And uh, these are the guys that love the 33rd degree to put bombs on in their main lodges and stuff like that. So even though he goes through all this stuff, a learned guy, supposedly, uh, he also uh, loved to go into uh, meetings with mediums, that their own mediums, and uh, trying to get portents of the future through uh, these, these mediums. They call them channelers today, I suppose. And um, they've definitely been involved in, in stuff like that. When you go into even Benjamin Franklin, high-ranking Mason, uh, he was the, the Grand Master of the Nine Sisters Lodge in France. In fact, in fact, he initiated Voltaire into the same lodge. Uh, Franklin himself, and they had orgies, by the way, blatant orgies, well-funded too. When you actually see in the Franklin Institute his diaries of how much they keep got in for wine and brandy and food every week, and his horsemen and his groomers, this this little you know plain guy from America image that they have. Uh, he really wined and dined, but he was also into um, a lot of the, the, these kind of things, uh, sexual magic, etc. Um, so uh, this goes way, way back into ancient days, of course, and to, and to mainly Babylon. They love Babylon for some reason, and coming out of Babylon is, is very big to them. Uh, look at the pageantry they have today. As I say, when, they, when you're watching the G8 or the G20 meeting, and all the security that you're all paying for so they can go and have a big massive lunch and an orgy and booze up. And that's really what it is, by the way, and make little personal deals with each other for their own bank accounts. Um, and then sign all the stuff that was made up by the Sherpas. Uh, you you look at the pageantry of them, even this one here with the, the red carpet treatment and, and uh, trumpeters, like some me- medieval announcement or something. I mean, this is all ritual you're watching. And these guys are so incredibly ritualistic, it's astonishing. Now, everything in our society to do with law is pure ritual. Children uh, sometimes will go through this kind of thing when they're copying uh, movies they watch on soldiers and they're into that, they're starting to attention and marching. But for grown men to actually to go in and take oaths and binding oaths of secrecy to each other and go uh, through all this incredible... Um, mind-bending stuff with physical movements, uh, kneeling, uh, bearing chests, uh, blood oaths with some of the high, high lodges, uh, and so on, then they take it very, very, very seriously indeed. Um, and then we go into, uh, again, the theosophists, which member them, many of them were members of as well. You can be members of different lodges at the same time. We see the feminist movement coming out of the, the Fabian Society because Anne Besant from the Theosophists was put on to be the, the first one to push feminism for women. And she was into creating a world messiah. It sounds crazy to talk about, but that's in the, the history books. Look in the Fabian Society today, I'll tell you that. So it's just astonishing to find that they're heavily into this ritualistic kind of mentality and it's not just watching royal weddings or a coronation, which are highly ritualistic, going way back to pre-England, obviously, and, and outside of England, because the only people you see wearing these, these um, uh, the fur around the neck, apart from the House of Lords and the Queen and royalty, uh, this mottled, speckled black and white, as Nimrod of ancient, you know, the ancient days, you know, you'll see the old uh, stealers are, uh, of him. He was the founder of Babylon, by the way. He was, that was the beginning of his kingdom, was Babylon. Yeah, Babylon, and it, it has many meanings, Babylon. 
And Nimrod himself has many meanings too, because in theology's side of it, uh, he was also a representative of a descendant of Cain, and sometimes coupled with Satan himself, uh, sometimes known as that. And of course, the, it's not so much the way they describe uh, Nimrod as, as all the titles that he had, and they're very big on the, the, the it's like all the old ancient gods had many titles. And so he, apart from being a master builder and all, all that kind of stuff, he also wanted to build a tower, a plan, in other words, to uh, go up to heaven, a symbolic of taking over all that had been made by God. In other words, a world ruler. Is, is what it, this dream has never died and become, uh, he'd be above all gods, in other words. And th- this plan has never, ever, ever died. Uh, there's an old book that was written by Hislop, it was called The Two Babylons. It's an excellent read on all of that. And you'll find so many connections to today and to the high societies and all this ritualistic nonsense you're watching uh, when the G20 and G8 meets. Especially of the Vatican and uh, the popes and all those, you know, their rituals are... Uh... Well, it's, it's interesting that Alastair Crowley, uh, who was a, he, he was a member of the Anglican Church, when he was brought up as a child, in fact, he's a very fundamental family he, he was, came out of. But he called himself the beast and the great Satan and all that kind of thing. And all, also into sexual magic and he, he abused lots of women and I think he may have killed a few in the way along too. Uh, but anyway, he said this, he's the guy who advocated the best sacrifice was a, a young male child. But uh, he said that he wanted to destroy all religions except Catholicism. He says because they still retained so many of the pagan ritualistics within the Catholic Church. So that's an interesting observation. Yes. And no matter how anything starts up, though, here's the key to it. I mean, the Vatican was saddled from its early uh, birth, really, with being an empire already. So it's already into politics and doing things of the world through devious means, because you can't separate the two. Uh, you always get devious people going up into your politics anyway. So, uh, and so, so they try to couple it with uh, their religion as well. And it, it wasn't long before it was heavily corrupted. And with each great meeting they had uh, to, to formulate uh, the system, it got tighter and tighter and, and more intolerant of everyone else. And um, that's what happens to all societies uh, as they go on in time. And that's why, in, in reality too, you could never ever have uh, this dream utopia if human beings stay the way they are. In every generation, you have psychopaths born, you get the uh, the, the, the crooks uh, are born. Uh, you always get the ones who want to get to the top and, and lord over other people. And uh, that's why all the pie-in-the-skies utopias they always give you uh, fall flat in their face and turn out generally to be horror shows like the Soviet system that killed about 80 million people or more probably by the time it was finished. Um, China did the same. Is it finished? <laughs> yeah, so you understand what I'm saying is that uh, uh, they, they always give you utopias while they themselves, the inner elite Will, will literally have their, their inner own religion and they take it awfully seriously. And they do it in the lodge with no windows, as they call it, you know. Um, Let me so they, ask you a question before I, I don't want to take up all your time, but, uh, yeah. you see, like, uh, 
Personally, of course, I personally believe in the Bible and in believe in Jesus Christ. So when, when the Bible tells us that Satan is the god of this world, that he's devised all the systems and institutions of this world, and that's what these people are into, satanic practices. And there's such a concerted effort in the media to discredit the Bible. So does that not perhaps prove that if the Bible was not true, that there were, there were need to discredit it? We don't read about them trying to discredit the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or the Tibetan Book of the Dead or any of the other so-called holy scriptures. So why so much effort? Mm-hmm. They're spent on trying to discredit the Bible if it really is false. If it was really false, you mm-hmm. know, it would disprove itself. It's a lot of people. A lot of people think the same thing, um, as I say, because you understand that Christianity in its early form, in its early form, was a life change, a world changing, ancient world changing system, and it was the first religion that came along that gave you. A worth, no matter how low you were as an individual. Before that, if you were a nobody, you were a slave. And everyone could be killed by, by the rich, uh, uh, hutzpahs anytime they wanted to do it with impunity. Um, no one, no one thought of themselves as having any worth to a, a deity. Kings were blessed by deity. Rich people. Yeah, the religious elites were very much, uh, you know, the priests and the, and the royalty. They were partners yeah. and, uh, and yeah. they were the elites in any society in the Brahmins and everything. It was but no one had ever said that you, you matter. You matter. No one had ever, ever said that. So in a sense, it was a revolutionary system that came into being where for the first time ordinary people on an individual basis says, you know, I'm not a nobody at all, you know, um, somebody or something cares about me. And that, that really was a revolutionary idea in its day. And uh, that's why it had to be brought back into a mass, a mass again, like the Catholic Mass. And then you're under a priest once again, even though the whole idea was to get rid of the middleman who was the priest. And it's right in the, in the New Testament. So there's no doubt about that. It's been an awful nuisance. But then again, the system that already predated it had no problem eventually taking it over and using it to its own uh, purposes. Uh, they always do that. Didn't, it wouldn't matter uh, what came along next. Uh, if a god himself came down and left you with uh, another, another system, uh, they'd take it over because these guys never give up, remember? They never give up. And remember, too, it's interesting, too, as the statements they make about the Lord of the world. Uh, what is the Lord of the world? The, the Greeks went into it in great detail. They call it the Demiurgos, that really was a, a low-level god that was in charge of the world. Uh, Christ, early Christianity would call it a Satan or a Lucifer. And uh, uh, what is the Lord of the world? Well, the Lord of the world is the, ones that, the one that blesses you with money, wealth, and a good time on this planet and a big family who take or carry on your, your, you into posterity. So that's the way the high hootspas in the world see it today. And I, I've actually heard some guys in the music industry talk about the serving the Lord of the world, and I know what they're referring to, and it's not the one you think about. But, but thanks for calling. Yeah, thank you, Alan. Good speaking with you. Thanks. Banner. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the matrix, and we've got Werner from New Brunswick, who I think has a few problems there with his cattle. Is that right, Werner? Pardon? Is, is it to the, you're the farmer, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was wondering if I, if you got uh, what I sent to you. I did. It was fascinating to watch what, what, what you've recorded there. You know, it, uh, it needed some more work, but I ran out of money. So I couldn't do any more editing work on it. 
but you've done very good documentation. Werner's had a big problem on his farm for many years, odd thing, odd things happening to his his cattle and so on. By the way, do you have do you have that uh, that video up anywhere on YouTube or Google? Oh, or? I, I don't. And uh, I'm I'm a dummy on the internet. But uh, Alan, that wasn't the reason why I was calling about. Uh, yes. But uh, the last caller, he basically, you know, both of you, you were, uh, you know, going right into the uh, origin why uh, the things are happening that are happening nowadays. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is about years ago, I, when I was thinking about it, it all got the root in uh, Babylon, you know. Yeah. Uh, let us be like gods. That's right. That's exactly what the boast was. Uh, let, let us be like gods and even rise above the heavens and, and above all the gods. Yeah. And, uh, this is basically uh, Satan's... Uh, Satan's the whole purpose uh, to have as many of mankind join him in in yes. his ultimate revolt against the Almighty One. Yeah. Well, I can remember too. The Rolling Stones did their tribute to the devil. Uh, it's been used in a few movies, in fact, that song. And they also did the, one of their tours. It was called um, Bridges to Babylon or Bridge to Babylon. It was called as well. And of course, they're up there in the, in the Order of Templi Orientis, the old Crowley group that really originated in Germany initially but it's all over, especially entertainment systems. And they're all into this kind of stuff, and it's very real to them. And it's, it's something certainly rewarded them for sure. There's no doubt on that. But they also help in the destruction of, of culture and society and direct the next culture. So that's why they're well rewarded, I guess. But you're right. They, they make a big, big deal of that ancient time. And, of course, out of Babylon, Babylon came, of course, the high priesthood who never disappeared um, uh, even ancient Egypt, when they had to go and reset the times for the days of the year, they called in the top priests from Babylon and they recorded that and it's been found in, in, uh, again in Egypt, their writings and, and some of the, the places they've dug up. So these were the, these were the, wi- the wisest uh, men in all the ancient sciences of their time. And of course they also were, were very secretive in the way that they gained their knowledge and how they picked their members. And they were very, very wealthy. They had the, the wealth of the ancient world. And as I say, oh, Babylon, how have you been fallen, etc. Uh, they ran the trade routes. They ran uh, all commerce, banking, loans. And they funded armies for warfare across the ancient world. Uh, they didn't dis- disappear. They, they moved on, obviously. And these, these so-called modern systems are simply the later um, manifestations of the same organizational system. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, the uh, advancement, uh, advancement of uh, technology and science, yep. uh, it serves basically in, uh, the ultimate purpose uh, to make mankind very powerful. Yep. And when man, mankind becomes very powerful, then more of uh, us humans would be willing to join Satan in his revolt against the Almighty One. If man would be a humble shepherd, it never would come in, in his mind to challenge the Almighty One. There's no doubt at all uh, that put so much of our money into extending their own lives eventually, and they're working towards, as, as David Suzuki, a big player, a geneticist too, uh, and big player for the UN, he said a few years ago on Korean television, he said, we have the technology now to make a man last 500 years if we so wish. Well, immortality was always the ancient goal, even in ancient times, through science, and they haven't stopped yet. But thanks for calling, Werner. Uh, we're out of time now. From Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God, your gods go with you.